Hello everyone, I'm Aaliyah with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Welcome to Women Work More, a Below the Radar series looking to make work, work for women. From dealing with sexualized work environments, to juggling work and home lives near and far, to retirement, these experiences not only vastly differ from men's, but also vastly differ for feminized workers across differing social intersections, such as age, race, nationality, and more. To gain a more nuanced perspective, SFU Labor Studies student Aliyah Bardi documents the lived experiences of women and their relationships with work across varying life stages and social intersections. This series also features sporadically intertwined sound clips of women speaking to their relevant work-related experiences. For this first installment, Aliyah speaks with Caitlin Matulowitz about the experiences of young women workers within the food service industry. We hear about gendered power dynamics in restaurants, normalization of sexual harassment, and issues around shift scheduling and tip-out practices. We also hear from five young women workers as they share their stories and ways of resistance. Hello everyone, welcome to Women Work More, a special series of Below the Radar. Really happy that you could tune in. I am very excited to have Caitlin Matulowitz with us today. Caitlin is the Executive Director of the Worker Solidarity Network and the co-chair of the BC Employment Standards Coalition. She has a PhD in Law and Society from the University of Victoria and did her dissertation on the topic of law, sexual harassment, and restaurants. It's really great to have you here, Caitlin. Thanks so much, Aaliyah. Thanks for um, inviting me. Looking forward to a conversation. So to begin, I'm wondering if you could quickly introduce yourself and your background in regards to gendered structures within restaurant work in law. Yeah, absolutely. So you already gave me a, a bit of a fabulous intro there. Very detailed. Thank you. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll share how I came to study gender and restaurant work in the law. I, as a young worker, worked in the full service restaurant industry, got my first job in a restaurant when I was 14 years old and worked there at multiple restaurants in the industry for, you know, eight years or so, where I learned there a lot of sexism, a lot of sexual harassment was so, so common and really not spoken about at all. That um, was my window into gender and restaurant work. And then I decided to, yeah, to do a PhD, to look at it in more depth and that's what brought me out to the West Coast. And that's, yeah, how I, how I landed there. And could you tell us why it's important to consider young women workers, especially when speaking on this topic of sexual harassment and restaurant work? Yeah, so with workplace sexual harassment and, and restaurant work, it's important to consider young women workers for a number of reasons. One being like the age of workers, and that's in part because the restaurant industry employs like a significant amount of, of young workers in BC and in Canada overall. And in all employment relationships, there's a power imbalance, right? Between the employer and the supervisor and the manager who have enormous power over the workers, given that they hire them, they fire them, they set their wages, they set their schedules. 
And I think that for young workers, this power dynamic is intensified, possibly because they're, you know, often working their first job. The managers or, or supervisors or employers are older than them. They're new largely to the world of work, too, and learning the norms of a workplace, what is acceptable and unacceptable. And then I, it's also important, you know, to consider gender because sexual harassment is gendered in a number of ways. Though statistically, you know, research often shows that women experience workplace sexual harassment more than men and that men are often the perpetrators of sexual harassment. And recent research on sexual harassment that has become more gender inclusive has shone a light on, for example, how transgender workers also report facing sexual harassment at work at a really, really high rate. And we definitely need more research on this and more research on um, on trans and non-binary workers' experiences of sexual harassment as well and how they're unique experiences. And, you know, that's, to be totally honest, a limitation of my own research as well. Yeah, and I know your question is, is focused on why why is it important to consider young women um, workers and sp- speaking of this topic, but it's also important to consider all workers and in the restaurant industry, in the back of house where a lot of, of men work, it's a, a culture that I think is really rampant with racism and homophobia and transphobia. Uh, so harassment and sexual harassment happens there too, but I think it just looks differently in terms of how dominant forms of masculinity show up. So in your essay, Law and the Construction of Institutionalized Sexual Harassment Within Restaurants, you quote Christine L. Williams, who wrote, individual workers may not define their experiences as sexual harassment, even if they feel sexually degraded by them. So I'm kind of wondering if you could briefly speak about what sexual harassment is and why it may be often overlooked by restaurant workers and young women restaurant workers. Thanks for reminding me of that quote from Christine Williams there. That was really relevant to me at my time of writing and research because to me it captured how normalized sexual harassment can be, especially in a particular workplace culture like the restaurant industry. And I think actually Christine Williams in that article is speaking of the restaurant industry and even her own experiences working in, I think, catering or hospitality. So yeah, I was drawn to it because it it captures how normalized it can be. And I was also drawn to that quote because it related to a specific challenge I found myself faced with and uh, remember from my research which, you know, it's important to say that I did this research before the Me Too movement took off. The Me Too movement, although it was, you know, long in the making, really, really hit the media and news and became like a household name six months after I defended my dissertation in, in 2017. And so the language of sexual harassment at the time when I was speaking with uh, restaurant workers was really, really different. It wasn't something that was readily talked about. And so this was a tricky thing. And so things, you know, that could fit the legal definition of sexual harassment, right? Which, you know, the legal definition of sexual harassment, really, really broadly speaking, is unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. Things that could fit that legal definition might be routine or regular in restaurants as a workplace culture. So what that meant for me is when interviewing workers, I didn't ask them, have you experienced sexual harassment at work? Because based on pre-existing research and also my own time working in the industry, I had 
a sense that the interactions and experiences I was looking to learn more about and hear workers speak about might not be described as sexual harassment and that language wouldn't be used. So instead I asked, you know, open-ended questions, inviting people to talk about their work experiences and describe interactions with coworkers and managers and customers that, for example, you know, they might have been uncomfortable with. And some people who I interviewed did use the language of sexual harassment and others didn't. And yeah, I think that this way of approaching the interviews allowed for a more kind of varied and complex ways to surface that women restaurant workers would handle and, and think about uncomfortable or unwanted sexual interactions that they have at, at work. I also, um, I have this tattoo on my forearm that says, this is art. When I wear short sleeves, you can see it. And men love using that as a conversation piece to talk to me. And they'll say things like, oh, you should have, like, you should have it tattooed on your other arm. And it says, I am art. And I don't know, it gets really weird. You know, routinely I ask, can I get you anything else? And the husband said, too bad you're not for sale. I, I genuinely didn't know how to react. And he gave me a, a tip that wasn't, like it was 20%. And his wife was very, very unhappy. I remember one time um, I was at my work and I was kind of just rubbing one of my shoulders. It was feeling a little sore. And an older customer had walked up to me and was just like, oh, do you want me to give you a massage? Kind of jokingly, but I just remembered feeling like super awkward in the moment and like trying to laugh it off. And then I remember this one, this one time uh, I was just, I was working, um, we had a conversation and then he, he was like, well, do you want to go out sometime? And I'm just like, sorry, um, what? I was speechless. I had, no, I had nothing to say. And I was like, how do I not sound rude to this man who's still a customer at my job, but also be like, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's no. Um, so I, I ended up being like, oh, I have a boyfriend. You speaking about that makes me think back to when I was in my late teens and working within the restaurant industry. And I remember having interactions with some customers. And when those things would happen, I never thought, oh, this is sexual harassment. If someone had told me those things at the time, I think I would have thought that that was very strong wording. And that kind of runs for the same reasoning that you were just giving is that we're taught that sexualized interactions, which are sexual harassment within the restaurant, is just part of the work. Yeah. And, you know, just while I guess we're, while we're talking about language, yeah, the language of sexual harassment seemed to be so invisible at the time, you know, in the industry. Invisible in terms of like, you know, a lack of formal policies about it, a lack of any like workshops in the employment environment about it. And yet at the same time, it was this thing that was like everywhere, but also invisible. I think a lot of the times we think it's like, oh, it has to be physical, like it has to be like touching, it has to be like roping and stuff like that. But I really think like if it's an interaction where there is a power dynamic where one person isn't allowed to say 
stop that no but they're clearly uncomfortable i think that that counts as soon as you start to feel uncomfortable that verbally as well as physically that right there is harassment uh it comes in all forms honestly i i feel like it'd be as as simple as an unwanted wink because there's so much like it's a small action but there's so much behind that action so as as simple as a wink or as being called honey um to like being touched inappropriately or contacted inappropriately like especially if it suddenly makes me very aware of the fact it's because i'm a woman it's not okay like just because we don't say anything doesn't mean it's okay like when you're in your training section there should be a section about unwanted sexual harassment and explaining like what you might experience what you're allowed to say um and who you can talk to if something happens and you feel unsafe and also we have forms that we can fill out if something happens in the workplace that made us uncomfortable like we can submit documentation of it but we're never taught how those work so it would be it would be super helpful if we were taught how to fill out these forms it it should be more of an open conversation within the workforce And kind of talking about another paper of yours, Laws, Gender, Subtext, you argue that restaurant work has been structured so that sexual harassment from customers has become a regular part of the work. So could you talk a bit more about the restaurant structures that caused this? Yeah, this was a, a bit of a, a puzzle that the dissertation and the interviews put together and something that is also Promising because this is something that is like, like your question says, it's structured to be this way and we can examine the way it's structured to be that way and then take it apart as well. Right. And have, have it look differently. Yeah. There's a whole ton and I'll just maybe hit on a few. And one, I think that is really important that contributes to sexual harassment and the normalization of sexual harassment, especially from customers, like your question asks about is the fact that restaurant work is precarious work. And this is a really, really important part of it. The law and something that this paper does that you you mentioned the law, especially employment standards law, which, you know, every province has a set of employment standards, which set the bare minimum working conditions for workers. So they cover, you know, things like minimum wage, hours of work, scheduling, overtime pay, and all sorts of things. And those standards, and my work focuses on BC, make the work precarious. It makes the work insecure in terms of, you know, schedules and having variable, unpredictable schedules. And when your schedule is insecure, the income that, you know, your income from employment is also insecure. If you don't know whether or not you're going to work an eight-hour shift on Monday or a two-hour shift on Monday or be sent home, you really don't have any economic stability there. Overall, in the industry, there's a huge lack of job security. 
employers can and do fire workers all the time without any notice and without just cause. So just, you know, you know, having that, being a restaurant worker and, and seeing, for example, your, your colleague, your coworker, your friend get fired for no reason, you know, you see the power that your employer can have and the work is low wage. It's, it's really, really low wage. We just got rid of the BC uh, liquor server minimum wage, which allowed liquor servers to be paid below minimum wage, but it's still low wage work where workers rely on customers for tips. So if your boss is harassing you, and he also is the person who has the power to decide whether or not to fire you, or the power to you know make your schedule week by week, what do you do? What are your options? Or, you know, even if it's a, a coworker and your coworker has power over you, or it's someone in the kitchen who's making the meals that you rely on to come out quickly or come out and look good because that's going to impact your, your tips that, you know, your customers leave. There's power operating in so many, maybe not obvious ways as well. Uh, and then for customers, because you asked specifically about customers, if you're a front house worker and you're relying on customers for tips and, you know, the, the law, the lack of a living wage increases your reliance on tips, it can be extremely difficult to like navigate customer behavior that, you know, you find unacceptable or unwanted. You know, we've heard stories during the pandemic where customers have said to servers, um, lower your mask so I know how much to tip you. I want to see how attractive you are. I've heard, you know, heard that story in my own work, heard that stories um, in media as well, interviewing servers. And I mean, it's appalling. It's completely appalling. And another part of that um, is, of course, like the customer service aspect of it all and the customer ethos or emphasis on pleasing customers in the industry. I remember speaking with one worker who told me, it's actually, it's not the service industry, it's the servants industry because everyone treats me like I'm their servant. And I thought that that, you know, statement was such a powerful, yeah, just so powerful in terms of highlighting like this, the relationship between customers and, and servers and that power dynamic, which isn't to say that's never challenged because it is challenged as well in, in great ways. But I mean, that power dynamic makes navigating inappropriate sexist behavior, racist behavior, homophobia from customers challenging. I feel like a lot of workplaces like this are very, very geared towards the customer experience rather than their um, workers experience. And so they are totally fine letting us be in these uncomfortable situations because they just want the money coming in it's like that's kind of that line that we're not allowed to cross or like not necessarily not allowed um sometimes managers are cool with that but it, it just feels kind of like do not you're not supposed to say that like you're supposed to be nice because this is your job and and stuff like that i and i know for a fact that there are people who like don't feel comfortable sharing with their managers and don't feel supported by their managers basically management needs to take a bit of a 180 and not not adhere to the customer is always right because most of the time the customer is not right 
especially when they're making awful comments at us and we're expected to just take it because management wants to keep their image clean and we are at the short end of the stick for it. So we do have that written in that we are allowed to ask customers to leave. They're making us feel unsafe. And if it gets to a really difficult point that we're allowed to ban them. But um, that, that extreme of a measure can only be done at the management level. And often the managers will use that as like the last, last, last resort. And even then won't even do that because they just want the money coming in from the regular. Trapped, honestly, because there's a line that we can't cross as opposed to if we were just, if it, if we were just at a street or if we were like at this like kind of equal levels of power, the fact that we are being paid to be nice to people and we are being paid to um, provide this customer service, whatever that means, I feel like there it limits what I'm able to say and what I'm able to like, um, how I'm able to react. Like oftentimes if customers are just making like a crude joke, I have to smile and be like, all right, okay, moving on. And so you mentioned a bit how BC liquor serving wage is now met with the minimum wage within BC. And so I'm kind of wondering where you still see the wage tip relation still existing or how else does BC law continue to maintain sexualized service styles? June of this year, BC finally eliminated the liquor server wage, like you mentioned, and it was in place you know, 2000 and 2011, so about 10 years. And, you know, it was clearly a discriminatory wage because 82% of liquor servers in BC are women. And, you know, like you said, it made um, them more reliant on customers. But even though it's gone and, you know, liquor servers are entitled to fifteen twenty an hour, which is regular minimum wage in BC, it's still really far from a, a living wage. The gap between a minimum wage and a living wage. A living wage in BC is about $20 an hour, depending on like the geography and where you're located. But it's about 20, 20 an hour in Vancouver and Victoria. And then when you factor in, you know, the fact that it's not a nine to five, 40 hour a week job, um, the sh- there's like it's shift work and it's often open-ended shifts and often like part-time work, even if people desire to be full-time, right? They're underemployed and they're given only part-time hours. So all that is a stay, like workers are still so reliant on tips and customers for tips. So I think it's still very much there. And also importantly, tips are an insecure form of income for many reasons, largely because they're not really guaranteed and so many different things can shape the outcome of one one's tips, but because you asked about law, we still have inadequate employment standards in BC when it comes to regulating tips and tip pools. And these laws really don't give workers much power in deciding how tips that customers leave, you know, on the credit card or table for them are redistributed. 
So just to yeah, give a little bit of an example, tip pool is legal in, in BC and employees are allowed to collect and divide tips or require servers to pay a percentage of their food sales, for example, at the end of their shift to the house, which then gets redistributed. But it's usually managers who are involved in redistributing. There's a lot of tip theft that happens behind closed doors. And the law really doesn't do much to prevent this because, for example, it doesn't make it mandatory that that restaurant workers have to be involved in, for example, redistributing tips. It doesn't require employers to have in place a transparent tip out policy so that folks know who's getting how much of the the tip. And then also the employment standards uh, laws that we have don't prevent employers from raising the, the amount of tip pool that they require. So there isn't anything in there about, you know, oh, it's only X many years, every three years or so with workers' consent that an employer can change the tip system. It just it gives all the power to employers, which means that tips are even more precarious and the law and the gaps in the law play a large role in that, which means that, like you mentioned, the gendered wage tip relation that plays into um, and contributes to sexual harassment, it still very much exists. I feel like it's because they know we cannot do anything about it, you know, and they know we want tips. I mean, we don't live off of them. Like, I would think, oh, it's nice. I get a tip. And, you know, they sort of abuse the fact that they're a customer. We're kind of seen as like less than our customers. Like we're there to like make sure everything is okay, please them in a way. And like tip culture, especially um, as opposed to like just being paid because we're doing our job, we're showing up, we're doing all that stuff, but having to like have the customers deem you worthy of being paid or not leads to these sorts of like entitled reactions and entitled interactions. I mean, that um, especially young women, because we're at this level of like power disadvantage, I guess, or like an imbalance of dyna- power dynamics. I definitely agree that we need to have better regulation for tip outs and everything like that. One place that I had previously worked at, how they did the tip out was that it wasn't like the percentage of tips that you made during the night. It was based off of like the dollar amount of like food that you sold. So even if you're getting customers that are not tipping, then that money is coming out of your own pocket and workers are having to pay into the tip pool, which I think is just like absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And the I spoke with highlighted that as well. And, it, you know, if you get a, a table, it's over a hundred dollars or so, and they don't tip you, that's, you know, 15, $20 that you're, you're missing and you're at, really out of pocket at the end of the night. In your time interviewing and conducting research or working with women restaurant workers, can you speak to any trends of agency or resistance that you came across? Yes, absolutely. I love this question and I'm so glad that you asked me about it. Um, women and people working in the restaurant industry have been experiencing sexism for decades, for decades and decades. And there's all sorts of strategies and ways of resisting. And I love this question because it's really important to make it visible. So a few patterns that, you know, I learned 
in interviewing workers that came up regularly for how they they you know cope with or handle in the moment. For example, remarks or comments from coworkers or customers or, or whoever is uh, one is humor. Humor is definitely a strategy of res- resistance to like, you know, dish it back to a customer who is saying something to you. Laughing off remarks as well in solidarity with my coworker, especially in the back of the house. Like someone tell- told me they would go to the back and tell their coworker, like, see that pervert over there at table 43. You'll never believe what he just said to me. And then, you know, they'd share and have a moment to like laugh at him. Uh, for saying that. Another, yeah, another example of coworker solidarity, asking a coworker to take over a table for them. Or, you know, if, if a couple of workers were working behind the bar together, for example, and someone didn't want to serve that customer their beer, asking a coworker to do it for them so that they didn't have to speak to him. Something else that came up too quite a bit is that, you know, more senior employees People who some people I interviewed referred to as their like restaurant mom for the senior women working there who had worked there a little uh, longer would warn new staff members to watch out for other employees working there and let them know like, you know, if he says anything to you, feel free to tell me. So a bit of camaraderie and support there as well, which had a bit of an age dynamic too with the older, more senior workers supporting younger workers. had worked in the industry for 11 years since she was 14 and saying that with time in the industry she's really developed the strategies for coping and also had developed ways of speaking back to customers and feeling a bit more comfortable doing that um and quitting came up a lot like someone just deciding i'm, I'm quitting you know i'm not taking this anymore and i think that in making the decision to quit was also a strategy of resistance, although one that definitely is hard and depending on your economic position too, isn't accessible to a lot of people. Before I was on the job, there was another girl that they told me about and, you know, she's also quote unquote exotic and she had a very ideal body that a man would like. And she also had to deal with a lot of creepy guys like that. Even the the security of the building was harassing her. And she eventually quit because she was just done with it. So I was like, okay, well, like, of course, if he comes back, let me know. And like, we could switch out, like, you can go to the back and I'll take care of it. Like, yeah, just like having eyes and ears out for interactions that are going on. And I think is really crucial to being able to make sure that you are able to like if there is a situation to step in I am lucky that my my team is almost entirely women so we're very very like supportive and um, protective of each other so I feel very lucky that um, my ship supervisors are very outspoken women and will absolutely confront a customer if any of us are feeling unsafe if someone is making a gross comment then we'll pretend that we don't hear them and then ask them to repeat themselves. And then it totally throws them off. Now that like I'm kind of older and seeing, you know, a younger generation, I guess, of girls who um, have been have been working like like 15, not 15, 
16, 17, 18 year olds, I kind of feel like I'm in this position where it's like, I have to be watching out for them as well and protecting them as well. So, you know, just supporting, supporting people and like caring for your, your coworkers. That's a really good point, mentioning that quitting isn't always accessible to everyone. But considering all of the research that you've done, or even some of the work that you're doing right now, what do you think we need to do to re-empower young women workers working within the restaurant industry? Yeah, so I think workers are empowered in many, in many ways. And before getting to contemporary examples, on a micro scale, I just shared a bunch of ways that workers resist daily. And then interestingly, in my research, I found that many of the leading sexual harassment cases in the um, Canadian sexual harassment case law came from women restaurant workers. And this is really striking. And a lot of sexual harassment cases in employment come from the restaurant industry when you look at the cases For example, the very first case in the early 80s out of Ontario, it's um, the Bell decision, the very first case in which a human rights commission found sexual harassment to be a form of sex discrimination came from a restaurant worker. And unfortunately, the case wasn't successful in her favor for a lot of reasons that kind of highlighted limitations of, of the law at the time and, and the law today even. But it was still a landmark case because it was the first case where a human rights commission found sexual harassment to be discrimination. And then the Janssen decision, the huge landmark Supreme Court of Canada case that decided that sexual harassment was a form of sex discrimination. And then that meant that in every jurisdiction within Canada, sexual harassment was a human rights issue. Again, came from a restaurant worker. Same with many of the cases that have decided that gender-based dress codes can be a form of human rights discrimination. Again, came from the restaurant industry. So I think that really says a lot in terms of women restaurant workers who want change and, and want to change and use a lot for that means. And then outside of human rights law, I could think of a a couple of more recent examples that show the power of young workers and young women workers in the industry and young trans and non-binary workers in the industry as well. Um, A Boston Pizza in the Vancouver area unionized earlier this year with, I know, right? Like a, a union victory for restaurant workers. They unionized with UFCW 1518. And one of the immediate things they did was challenge a gender-based and discriminatory dress code that the employer had introduced on International Women's Day earlier this year. Bad timing on 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 his part. Not like there's any great timing for that, but uh, yeah. And the workers challenged it. You know, a, a gender-based dress code that made it such that you know women have to wear skirts, which obviously is sexist and discriminatory based on sex and also based on gender identity for folks who are um, non-binary, of course. And and it was a success. They went to the media. There was a lot of media pickup on it. And it was a victory for them to get that, that dress code changed. And then on um, the Guangan territories where I live here in Victoria, recently there's been survivors of sexualized violence in the restaurant industry creating like advocacy Instagram accounts. And so using online tools as a form of resistance, which also makes me think of another example 
that when I was doing my research, a professor um, in Alberta shared with me, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Fed Up, the Feminist Eatery Database Undercover Project, which is something if folks are listening and that catches their attention, look it up, Fed Up. It's a database that tries to do or does reviews for restaurants and cafes and bars to take a feminist approach to eating out and highlight sex, gender, race discrimination in the service industry. We need to stop letting people that make such comments get away with it simply. Like, take that rush or the thrill they get from, you know, all those interactions away from them. We need to change the culture and systemically how men, especially older men, interact with young women. That's a whole big like upheaval that I can't even imagine on how like it starts young, I guess, like teaching young boys that this is not okay. But then also there needs to be a drastic change in how we view customer facing employees and how we treat um, people in food service. Stand up and speak up about it. Don't be afraid to talk to, you know, your other employees that you work with about a situation that had occurred that made you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful because I feel like oftentimes we don't know how workers are being treated within restaurants unless the staff ends up being really vocal. So I feel like something like that with Fed Up is so amazing. Kind of moving on from that. I'm wondering if there is anything else that you would like to add. Maybe just one more project that I haven't highlighted yet, but May I is a project that got started up uh, here and it's with industry workers, frontline sexualized violence educators, workers' rights advocates who have all come together to try and address and prevent sexualized violence and sexual harassment in the restaurant and bar industry. And the group developed, it started in 2017, And the group developed a workshop for industry workers that is fabulous and discusses things like the root causes of sexualized violence in the industry, tangible approaches and strategies for navigating sexual harassment at work. For example, how to get support or ask for support from a coworker or how to be a supportive coworker. It also shares workers' legal rights concerning sexual harassment at work. And I think this is also a really inspiring and empowering form of resistance. And recently, the group has transformed a lot of the workshop content and that labor into a zine, a really beautiful zine, which I'd love to share with you. Uh, It's free online. And um, yeah, if any of your listeners are interested in checking it out as well, it's a fabulous, fabulous resource and project. Yes, this sounds like a really wonderful project. So if anyone wants to take a look or more about Project May I, it will be in the show notes below. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming in and speaking about young women workers, sexual harassment within the spaces of restaurants, their resistance, and also looking forward to making changes for restaurant workers and young women restaurant workers. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for listening to the first installment of the Women Work More series with guest Caitlin Matulowitz. To learn more about labor projects like May I or Caitlin's past research, check out the show notes below. A special thanks to our all-women team that created this series. 
Our audio editor, myself, Paige Smith. Our cover artist and secondary editor, Kathy Fang. Our transcriber and copywriter, Melissa Roach. And our host and producer, Aliyah Barty. As well as to each and every woman that spoke on this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for the next installment of this series, coming out on Friday, November 12th, with Dr. Amanda Watson.